0: Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of The Unbalanced Note. I'm Brian Kluger, and oh my gourd, we have a wonderful, excellent episode today. We have a very special guest. We have a legendary intercontinental champion of music, Film composing, shit. conductor, orchestrator coming in from LA, Benjamin Wallfish, welcome to the show.
1: <laughs> I, I really hope I can live up to that. That 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 <laughs> My inner Brit is cringing. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! Uh, uh, well, yeah, just just a humble noise maker who lives in a cave and makes makes music for fun. <laughs> that's that's me. How you doing, man? Good to, good to meet you.
0: It's good to meet you. Finally, we get to talk about all things film composing. We're gonna get to movies. We're gonna get to music, but just like in the movie the sound of music we have to start at the very beginning ben where did it all start for you in music did you was it something you heard on the radio was it a, an album your parents picked out where did it all begin for you in music
1: you know it's it's one of those things where i mean there's, there's lots of different aspects i think if you ask any musician it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment um I think in my case, I was very lucky to grow up in a family of musicians. Um, my dad's a cellist. mum's a violinist. My grandparents as well. Uh, my grandfather was a concert pianist. Grandmother, I mean, there's uh, a cellist. There's a, a ton of music in the family. And I would grow up as a toddler. Uh, just the, the practice and the, and the, the play of music, you know, the playing of music, whether it's practicing at home with my parents or going to their rehearsals or things like my dad uh he had a he had a duo cello and piano duo with my grandfather so they would rehearse two or three times a week and as a kid I'd go and and I would literally just sit under the piano um it was like my favorite place to be just listening to them rehearse Brahms and Schumann and Beethoven sonatas and just absorb the idea that music is synonymous with family it's just something that everyone in my family both did and currently does um and and if they weren't doing it, we were talking about it. it. It's like a, it's like part of the, just it was part of growing up that music is a sort of central part of the family. So it was weirdly one of those things where you almost don't question it. Like, of course, one day uh, I'll be a musician. This is what you see every day. Um, but for me, uh, from an early age, I was I got very obsessed with John Williams, as many people growing up in the eighties did. Uh, really, of my colleagues say the same thing uh i distinctly remember um going to see et uh I, I must have been 5 or 6 at the time um and it was um it's one of those experiences that that you you know you have a few childhood experiences that that you remember i even remember the the the, the feeling of the cinema and the um <laughs> getting the lp which my dad bought me afterwards which i wore out and i think it was one of those things where the piano was always there for me as a as a place to, to, to play, I would, I would always annoy all my piano teachers because I would never practice what they put in front of me. And instead I'd, there'd be a, a chord or a, some kind of harmony change that, that I, that gave me a feeling and I would be, I would have no idea what it's called or what it is, but I'd experiment with it and find other ways of doing it and just make tons of mistakes and happy accidents and then spend hours exploring. And I think that experience in combination with this sort of, the emotional power of a score like et i was kind of hooked on this idea of you know what is it like to to make music from scratch uh and and so i would spend many hours uh, at home just just playing the piano um and discovering things and i think it was et that was the the, the kind of that was the catalyst i think for the idea of film music and and that, that obsession has never gone away i've an I've, uh, absolute fanboy of John Williams and always have been and it's it's one of those it's not just John Williams of course because I was lucky enough to get into the the world of classical music a little bit um as an as a as a kid just watching my parents rehearse and being part of the uh just the day-to-day practice of music and seeing the amount of work that goes into it so sometimes my dad would take me to orchestral rehearsals that he was a part of and um and singing orchestra you know literally sitting next to my dad right where the conductor is, for example. You know, these these incredibly fortunate and lucky experiences I had as a kid. And I, like I say, it's, just, it's one of those things that just naturally bloomed in, into just wanting to pursue that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those, I could go on and on, honestly, about this stuff, but I don't want to bore you.
0: <laughs> You're definitely not boring me. This is amazing. Uh, so was the piano the first instrument that you took up
1: yeah absolutely um I tried other instruments but you definitely would not want to hear me attempt to play the violin <laughs> uh yeah piano was uh, I think it was my grandpa honestly he just he was such a kind man and um he he would uh he would just put me on his knee as a kid and and whilst he was playing the piano and just let me you know he would just put my hands on the keyboard and um he had this approach to playing the piano which was treating it like it was a string instrument as opposed to a percussion instrument you know given you know obviously hammer's hitting the string but he would always talk about lying and drawing out legato and and he would obsessively practice i think that was one of the things looking back i got most from my family is this work ethic aspect where i mean to this day you know my dad's in his 60s and has played the cello professionally since he was in his early 20s and um the state he practices five or six hours a day kind of without fail. And I think that's a, when you see that as a kid, you sort of understand music as something that doesn't just happen. It, it requires that that level of commitment. And especially when you're writing, um, it's all or nothing. And, and so, yeah, again, I was pretty lucky to, to see that firsthand as a kid.
0: You no, know, that's amazing. And do you uh, recall one of the first songs you actually learned by yourself that maybe you uh, did a recital for the family and friends on? <laughs>
1: there are two pieces I remember distinctly as a kid that, that I was just obsessed with. And it was because of the harmony. One was the, the Moonlight Sonata, the first movement. Um, And there's a chord progression in there right at the beginning. Um, I I later learned, I think it's called a Neapolitan cadence, but it's, it's a major D major, a flat seven. And it's the D major, a flat seven. Any musicians listening can check that out. That, it, it, it it's it made my hair stand on end as a kid and I didn't understand why I and I would play those three chords over and over trying to understand what was going on and transpose them find other ways of, of creating the, the same feeling and I just remember the think little moments like that. as an example of again why I would annoy my piano teachers because instead of actually learning the notes <laughs> I would find things in the piece that I loved and then would sort of go down a rabbit hole of my own um and so that was one piece which i remember just playing over and over and and also there's a this incredibly famous the the first prelude by bach in the World Time for clavier is it's the first one in c major and that that has just this concentration again on harmony it's it's just arpeggiated chords and there's famous melodies that have been Put on top but the 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 purity of that and, and the way that there's tension and release in, in the chord progressions again as a kid it was that sense of exploration and just not understanding but knowing it gave me an, an emotional response so again that was a piece which i i, I just love to play and uh i got seriously into rap not that i could play it very well because it's extraordinarily difficult but um i remember probably age 10 or 11 um my dad took me to a concert where the second piano concerto was being played and double billing with the Rhapsody on the theme of Paganini. And again, something to do with the way he, he just, Rattmaninov just effortlessly creates this, this force of emotion uh, in, in his, in his melodic writing, especially in his harmonic writing and his orchestration. And I became heavily obsessed with, with those two pieces, um, second piano concerto. And, and then, the rhapsody and theme paganini and a bunch of other pieces of, of his his preludes i tried to learn those and um i think there was that sense of i was at that moment in my life i was thinking I'm, i want to be a pianist because th- my favorite music was for piano and i would be practicing and practicing but there was always that sense that i would, <laughs> i was never going to be good enough to be a professional pianist or at least i was not going to you know, commit the kind of hours of, to, to the the rigor of practice because I would be improvising and discovering my own chords, and my own you know, just finding things out for myself. Uh, that's what gave me the most joy. So it's that thing of just being exposed to all this different music and then bouncing off it and, and exploring different avenues. I guess.
0: Oh, that's great! That's wonderful to hear. And I guess you show, you showed yourself and everybody that <laughs> you're definitely good enough to do every, all of that. <laughs> it
1: takes time you know it's it's an ongoing thing you know i i I wake up every day whenever i go to the studio and the first thought i have is you know am i good enough you know i I have to almost prove it to myself every time i i I start a new cue sometimes just there's there's that you're constantly trying to improve and 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 for me personally just always trying not to repeat myself too much so obviously there's a sound and there's a sensibility which i which I, I gravitate towards whatever that is but but yeah it's it's important not to to get, to get complacent or you know just, it's it's a it's constantly challenging yourself is very important to me
0: right right um and i and i want to ask about this because this you know hits close to home for myself and my family but um I believe that your paternal grandparents um, and your grandmother, Anita, right. she was a member of the Women's Orchestra of Auschwitz. And you That's right. worked, because um, I'm Jewish, I had family going through all of that. And you mm-hmm. actually, did you work with Spielberg on a short film? And how does that uh, heritage um, impact you with your work today?
1: I mean, it, it, it's one of those... It's one of those questions which which has a very long answer and, and I'll, I'll try and keep it keep it succinct but I mean my grandmother who's still alive she's ninety five uh, she is without doubt the strongest woman i know and is is an incredibly uh she's she's she has incredible force of personality and strength but she's also so kind and so funny and and uh, you know I, I we're joking with her all the time, but she's someone who survived the unimaginable and then went to a place in her life where for decades she didn't feel she could talk about it as many survivors of the Holocaust, I think, have experienced uh, where it, it was almost so hard to describe and not, not wanting to traumatize their, child, their children and, and so on. But then uh, in the, in the eighties and nineties, you know, as, as my, my, her, her kids starting to have kids and so on, she, she decided to write a book and really start to, open up about her experiences and her book is called inherit the truth. It was published in the nineties, um, and has been, you know, translated in, I think it's a nine or 10 different languages. And she, she's made it her life mission to educate young people about her experiences. Um, and for the last two decades has traveled all around the world, talking to schools, academies, universities, and, um, and become one of the most, uh, active uh, members of, of that community of Holocaust survivors um uh, in, in that world in that way and we're just unbelievably proud of her she still does that work to this day in her mid-90s um and in terms of the impact um I think it's very complicated <laughs> because in two ways I mean the well several ways the the truth is it was the cello that saved my grandmother's life and and so you couldn't Easily see it that without the cello, none of us would would be here. Um, she was, uh, I mean, just to unpack that a little bit. Um, when she arrived at Auschwitz, um, she was nineteen, and um, when she, you know, she managed to not get immediately, you know, in the, in the line where people were just murdered straight away um, in the gas chambers, and she was. Um, that's a that's a whole story in itself how how that happened because she actually arrived as a a prisoner it's a it's something which she explains very well in her, in her book but if you can imagine at that time it was preferable to arrive with with some kind of status and she she had she was actually a, a prisoner at that time in in a, in a regular German prison for forging papers with her sister uh and it was preferable to arrive with that status rather than just arrive as a jew uh so, because at that time I believe there was a, it meant that you were processed as opposed to immediately put in the line where you were murdered straight away. Uh, it's such a difficult thing to talk about in this, in this format. In this, but but just to go into that kind of detail about how she survived. Um, and I, again, it's it's a book, so I'll, it's hard to summarize. But but in essence, when she was um, being processed, I, her arm was being tattooed, which was by a fellow inmate. Um, and she, this, this person asked so "What did you do before you, you know, before this happened?" And she said, "I, I was a cellist." And uh, and the conversation was, "You'll be saved," because at that time, by sheer coincidence, they were forming an orchestra, if you can imagine, in Auschwitz. It was a women's orchestra, and they didn't have any bass instruments at that time. And uh, so, a cello was found, um, and she, for about ten or eleven months played in this orchestra um in, in in and and they were playing marches for prisoners they were entertaining the guards and that was her way of surviving and and she was there with her sister um and through a whole other story they they managed to connect um at that at that at the at the camp and and they survived together she went on to be transferred to bergen belsen which was uh just a a place there was no orchestra and she just survived through her sheer strength and uh was there for a number of months and then was liberated by the british um but without the cello there's there's almost no question that she she would have most likely not survived um like like the millions of people who who didn't in that unthinkable time um and she um and she she wouldn 't have our family wouldn 't be here, so, so as a kid you know we, we, we weren 't aware of that story until I was prob- I was probably ten or eleven when when that was conveyed to me in that sort of detail um, and that 's a lot to carry, but the key thing to say here is the way in which it was conveyed to us was not with that sense of burden and that sense of here is this un- unimaginable part of your family history. Um, deal with it it was very much in the, in the context of here's what you learn from this and I think it's undeniable that yes the the sense that music is the reason my family exists and in, in that respect has a huge impact on you as a kid and and, and has very much influenced myself and my siblings and uh, probably my dad as well to to commit fully to music as as a as an art form but it, but it's not something you think about all the time. I think that's very much a subconscious thing, perhaps it's more about just making sure that for the greater uh, importance of keeping the, the knowledge of that time, um, alive. So it's not just history that you read about. It's the fact that my grandmother has been so active, educating people and young people so they can see with their own eyes and, and, and hear her truth and hear her stories. Um, that's so important, and and her legacy through through as a musician. Uh, so when she was liberated in in um, uh, I think it was forty four, uh, it was by the British, and she um, managed to come to the UK as a refugee. So she literally had absolutely nothing. She was a refugee at the UK border. She was allowed in, and she was connected through her uh, family members and friends from before um, the, the Holocaust um, with some people in London and she quickly started playing the cello again. Uh, you know, she was housed by some other musician friends and with those people she was living with and connected with, she formed, she was one of the co-founders of the English Chamber Orchestra. Um, and she went on to play that orchestra still exists today in, in London. And she played in that orchestra for probably 40 or 50 years. Um, and just made a living in London as a, as a cellist, uh, Connected with my grandfather. They were actually at school together in Breslau, which is now Wroclaw in Poland. Um, uh, But they didn't really know each other at school, as in high school. Um, And they they reconnected again through mutual friends and got married soon after. He was also a refugee. Uh, He needed status. um, And he was eventually granted status by the UK government. And that's the reason I'm British, is because they were refugees. So I, I come from that lineage as well, which is really important to me. As well, um, uh, and then my my dad was born uh, my aunt his, his sister was born and who's a very distinguished author and psychotherapist now um, and um, yeah my dad just went on to play the cello professionally following in my grandmother's footsteps and um, but and yeah and I've no neglecting the other part of your question so um, uh, a few years ago so this was after I uh, connected with my dear friend Hans Zimmer who who I've been lucky enough to work with on a number of projects. He's been my mentor for, for, for many years now. Um, he, uh, he was asked to uh, be involved with a documentary about Auschwitz, which James Moll directed and Steven Spielberg produced. And, um, Hans invited me to, to be a part of that, um, which I was incredibly grateful for because it actually meant I could call my grandmother and say, Here's some music for cello. Please can you play it? And she at that point was about seven years in from having put the cello in, in its box and, and, and said, I'm done playing. And she got it out for that. And within five minutes was playing like she had never, had never put it away. It was absolutely beautiful. It was a very moving moment. And so it's her playing in, in the soundtrack of that uh, short film. And, um, yeah, it was just a, a huge honor to, to be a part of that project.
0: Wow. Uh, First, thank you for sharing that great story. And second, I think you just pitched an amazing feature film that the Wallfish family could compose (laughs) and be a part of. That's uh, pretty incredible. Thank you for sharing.
1: Of course. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so moving on to the year 2001, I believe personally I was midway through college at this time, you know, playing a little clarinet and saxophone here and there. But you, Benjamin, you might have been involved in a little indie film called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's ah. Stone. Is that true?
1: It's not true. It's not That's, true. This, this, this is the crazy thing about IMDb. Someone put that on IMDb. And for years, I've been trying to take it down because... I have no idea who put that up because <laughs> anyone can submit anything on IMDb, and for some reason, it still hasn't been taken down. I, I think every two or three months, I I write to IMDb, please remove this credit because it's not correct. So, <laughs> so no, was it was it I just the been, fact
0: that you were British? And <laughs> I
1: have no idea. I just it's like a someone put that on IMDb. I mean, age twenty two, working on Harry Potter as my first film—that would have been insane. <laughs> so, so. As much as I would have been obviously floored to be in that position, I mean, I think if you look at the credit itself, it's almost like a prank credit because it says something like "music editor, orchestrator." I mean, it's like that's in itself, not, no. So, so sadly, no, that that did not happen. So was um, it? So
0: was and it, so it the 2005 with Dear Wendy, kind of your first yes. big project?
1: That was my first movie. That's right. Okay, mm-hmm.
0: okay. Can you talk yeah. about you know? you know, college age, kind of around Mm -hmm. there, maybe mid-20s or so, and then you're just, you're thrown into this first project. And Mm -hmm. was there an element of, like, just being frightened or just head-on confidence taking it on? How did that go?
1: Well, I mean, to give you a little context, so at that time, I – I was mostly doing classical music. I was I was kind of doing quite a lot of conducting at that time, and but my whole focus as a composer was to kind of try and bridge this gap, which I later discovered just wasn't possible between writing concert music and and writing film music. Because um, I was doing, you know, commissions for 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 orchestras and chamber music. I was just incredibly lucky to have the, those opportunities as well. Um, and so that movie was was one of those crazy things that happened where uh, i just signed with a, an agency air Adele, um maggie rodford who's a good friend of mine um i was introduced with, to her through another dear friend of mine called claire Bourne. now claire claire was an agent uh, she had an agency called blaze music in london um one of the sweetest people i know just an incredible woman claire and i i randomly got in touch with her at age 19 through I was doing, I think it was a conducting course. Uh, it's called the Canford School. It was a summer conducting course, and I randomly met someone there who was at, who was at university with Claire. Uh, and I happened to play him some demos I'd done—very primitive library music things I, I was I had on cassette. Um, and uh, and he said, "Oh, I'm going to send this to my friend Claire." And then Claire reached out to me. I think it was in this is when was this 1998, um, and then she just started putting me forward for the little tv shows uh like documentaries for granada because i was in manchester at that time so granada television was the main uh producer of tv there and, and she introduced me to this is the 90s you know so i literally went in with a cassette uh, you know uh, demos and um and i was just introduced to this guy uh he's called ian Rousham. uh i'm gonna name drop some some people who were very instrumental in how this all started uh and he just put me on these random documentaries. Um, so whilst I was studying in Manchester as an undergraduate doing classical music, um, I was also doing these, these TV shows for Granada and just learning about, not just about writing to picture, but also just the, the speed at which you need to work and how, you know, I mean, I had a very primitive sampler set up. It was like a s760 with 18 megabytes of ram i mean these days that would be impossible but i had this one sampler i had uh, a synth a Korg triton which is also a sampler um i had a dap machine uh an eight channel mixer with one reverb and and a really primitive it was a mac lc 475 like with you know 80 megabyte hard drive running logic i mean this is in the 90s but I, on that incredibly primitive rig which was mostly Birthday presents from my parents over the years. they um, uh very generous in that way. Um, that that was what I used to write these TV shows for Granada back in in the late nineties. And so what happened was when I by the time I left Manchester and came to London in the early well early two thousands to study at the world Academy, also still classical music. Um, I had these TV shows under my belt, and and I'd had an understanding of the pragmatic side of writing to picture. Um, Even though it was um, in that way, and for TV, and I was just very lucky at that time that Claire introduced me to Maggie, um, who then signed me on to her roster um, and started pitching me to to filmmakers. and And that was one of the movies that I was pitched for, Um, and I I wrote a demo um, and sent a show reel. It was just one I had no idea what, what it would lead to. But uh, I, w- I went out to Copenhagen to meet Thomas Vinterberg and um, Lars von Trier, who wrote the script, and Thomas directed it. And we got on very, very well. And they hired me, and, and I was floored. Um, and it was very fast. I think they gave me three weeks to do the whole thing because they were not um, intending to use a, a film score at all. Uh, it, was, it was back when they were doing the Dogman 95 films where uh, very minimal production um and uh, part of that was no no composed music but um in the end they needed some music so so i just was crazy enough to say yes and i think the most nerve-wracking thing about it uh well there's two things it was the speed um but that was kind of mitigated by the fact thomas was so generous with his time because they they set me up at uh in, in their studios in Copenhagen, I just got a room as part of their, their editing suite and he would just come every morning, every night uh, in the morning, it was to, to brief me. And then in the morning he'd come and in the evening, he'd come and listen to what I'd written. And that's how he managed to do it so quickly. Um, not a dissimilar situation to the one I had with Corvabinsky on a cure for wellness. Um, but the, uh, the, the most nerve-wracking thing of all was recording it in, in, at air studios with the Philharmonia orchestra. I have never done that before. And uh, I, I was so tired having spent three weeks writing this thing. Um, it was, it was one of those incredible moments where I remember the orchestra just, I mean, think I could see I was very nervous and, and a, kind of a first timer and they were so generous and so, so kind um, and then played in a way which just made me cry. And I was just blown away and, hooked forever so that was my yeah that was that was one of those experiences I, I look back on and I was I, I was very lucky hired me because I had absolutely no credits at all it was it was purely based I think on, a, on this demo I wrote and I was just very fortunate that that's how it started incredibly lucky
0: that um, is great yeah it was was this also the moment where you kind of got outside your body for a second and said holy shit I'm good at this I
1: know I I don't think I've ever said (laughs) (laughs) again I think it's the inner Brits that prevents one from from saying something like that I think it's more about like I love this I think that's 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 a better way because I think it's the the music itself is 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 the is the reward for the process it's a very weird thing to say I'm just just winging it here but just just this is the the thought I'm having is like it's the process itself is so it's it's different every time and you and you you go through a process with a collaborator every time that is inspiring and you're trying to tell their story talk, you know with the director's story and the music that comes is embodied by the orchestra and that's the that's the reward for the process that's where no matter how tricky it might have been or how much how many sleepless nights and just relentless work when you get in the room with an orchestra every time it is the most inspiring and emotional and powerful moment it literally never gets old i've been lucky enough to done many hundreds of scoring sessions now and it, it is something that is always just the the best thing Uh, you know the the orchestra I think it's important to emphasize what musicians what these orchestral musicians bring to what we do as composers it you know we make our demos in computers using samples and and that's fine it's a it's a tool but you can't underestimate just the 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 storytelling and the the sort of emotional power of of what, what a group of great artists when they get together these these musicians these orchestras and play and, and 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 create a narrative that they just they instinctively know through the way a harmony might work and where they, they know what their position in the harmony or how a line is meant to finish or, or grow those things are that's half of it if not more you know and, and and we're nothing as as composers without those musicians so yeah that that is um definitely it's <laughs> that's when you rise out of your body a little bit and and and, and f- find yourself in that in that that wonderful state of, of um, yeah. That's great. great. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I like that. I like that. And so a few years go by, you're doing movies, but then, then you kind of jump in, you're, you're uh, transitioned into this amazing horror realm when you, come across David Sandberg and uh, you meet Ed. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, that first meeting you had with David and how y'all clicked?
1: Absolutely. Um, So we were introduced by my good friend, Eric Heisserer, who's an absolute genius screenwriter and director. Um, Eric reached out to me in 2012 uh, to score his movie *Hours*, uh, which was his directorial debut, and we hit it off. Um, and and basically, there was this moment where I'd just done uh, my first film for New Line. Uh, it was called *Within*, um, and I had made a great relationship with with the guys over there at New Line, who have since become very dear friends. And, and, and um, the the actual um, process of meeting David Sandberg was was we just had dinner uh, with with Eric. It was just the three of us. Um, and it was just a, a wonderful dinner. We, 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 I knew he was making this movie, Lights Out, um, and so I'd watched the short, and and I came with a bunch of ideas. Um, but it was, yeah, we just clicked. had a, had a really great discussion, and 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 they went from there. Really,
0: that's that's really cool. I With and you went on to do Annabelle Creation, mm.
1: and, and... I, and I should sorry, I should add that um, Eric Heisserer wrote the script for Lights Out, so that's how. Yes. That was connected. And of course, New Line produced lights out. So it was like those two two things led to that meeting. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Right. No, yeah. You did the lights out with uh David, Annabelle Creation, and then went on to do Shazam, which I know they've just reissued through Mondo and Death Waltz, which is fantastic. But you also went on to It Chapter One and It Chapter Two. And with all of these horror movies, I Mm. believe, you know soundtrack aficionados, horror movie buffs, have kind of permanently labeled you as the godfather of horror soundtracks. <laughs> oh my God.
1: <laughs> well, I, I had no idea. But, I mean, it's interesting because, I, uh, firstly, that's obviously an amazing compliment, but I've never thought of these movies as horror films. I know that sounds sacrilegious, but, of course, there, there's, there's horror in them, but they're, they're incredibly... Deep movies. I mean, I, I mean the it films, especially. I've always seen them as as adventure films, um and you know, obviously, the that there's an incredible, uh, terrifying <laughs> elements in it. Let's uh, not discount that. But but the 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 emotion in those stories, uh, the Losers Club and and the the coming of age stories, and there's a lot of there's so much going on under the surface, and the 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 structure of those films too. You know we were thinking of them as a, as a, as Amblin adventure films more than anything else. And, you know, Annabelle is, is, I would say more of a pure horror film for sure. Um, but still you have to care about these characters and be fully invested in them as, as people and, and how they relate to each other before you can be genuinely, uh, you know, scared for them, I think. Yes. So that. That was our philosophy. And um, I think a cure for wellness for me was the, the movie, which where I learned the most about, how to to kind of bridge that gap between something that is terrifying, but also has that you know narrative depth, and and, and working with Gore Verbinski was just what, like, was just pure like a masterclass for me. I was so lucky to spend that time with him, and and really learn just so much from from Gore. You know, before I did those movies, that, that came just before Lights Out.
0: Right. Right. And I mean, you're, you're definitely telling a story musically along with the film. So is there, what is the most invigorating element in collaborating on a movie score with these people that you've done?
1: You know, it, it it's, you have to love the process. Um, and for me, I love the idea of seeing a film without any music. I always make a point of turning off any temp before I, you know, when I see a movie for the first time, uh, of course I'll turn it on again if the director wants me to. Um, but I'd say the most invigorating thing is that those early discussions. Well, there isn't really the most. I mean, there are moments throughout the process that that are incredibly exciting, and and also moments which are incredibly challenging, uh, and and sometimes really difficult. Um, but the, the the overall process of of just discovering what it is the director is trying to achieve with the story beneath the surface because that's kind of where music exists. It's, it's a subconscious thing. You don't really necessarily want to be too explicit with the audience and lead them. It's a, it's that you, you want to sort of create an environment where they can experience emotions in a, in a visceral way and in the most powerful way possible, whatever those emotions are. Um, and so just trying to get inside the what's going on underneath the story and, and, and those those discussions are just fascinating and um, and for me it's, it has to you have to start with music so i 'll always try and have if not the first, definitely the second meeting with the director with music to show them whether it 's a suite you know if they haven 't shot the movie or i haven 't seen the film i 'll have read the scripts and i 'll write just my gut instinct um, in the form of a suite, and so we 're already talking about music because it 's very hard to. Uh, talking about music, which you can listen to, it's hard to talk about in the abstract. Um, but I think you know the, the, the like I said earlier, the, the payoff is other scoring stations. Those, are the, that's the moment where, no matter how difficult it might have been to get to that point, whether it's because of lack of time or or other challenges that can happen sometimes, um, that, that that always remains probably the most invigorating moment if if, if we're going to pinpoint one. Yeah,
0: that's that's cool. That's cool. And I know you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, you you became friends with your mentor is Hans Zimmer and mm-hmm. you got to work with him on Hidden Figures and then you got to work with him again on Blade Runner 2049. And mm-hmm. both of those just, you know, knocked it out of the park as well with all of your scores. But I mean, a lot of people really took notice of that. It's won a lot of awards, but with Blade Runner 2049, can you talk about, you know, most likely you were a fan of the original and coming aboard this Absolutely. franchise, working mm-hmm. with Hans on this. Can you talk a little bit about kind of, Oh, I got the call and I got to do this and then just kind of getting into all the either research or just working and seeing it all come together.
1: Mm. Um, well, I, I was just finishing it. Um, and, uh, prior to that, a few months prior, we, we'd just done Hidden Figures together, Hans, myself and Farrell and Williams, which was an incredible experience. Um, and it was, it was one of, it was very last minute, um, I was—I think it was about 10 p.m. Uh, I got a call from Hans' assistant. Can you come into Hans's studio? Uh, He's—you know—he'd like to have a chat. Uh, there's some people there, and I, and I thought, sure. So I walked into the room, and, and there was Denis Villeneuve and uh, so Villeneuve and um, Joe Walker, the editor. Um, and I thought, oh, this is about Blade Runner, because of course I knew they were making that movie, uh, and I was. Just pretty pretty flawed that okay, I might be part of this conversation. Um, but it was a situation where um we had about three months to do the whole thing, and we very quickly just hands myself to me and Joe, that was the band, and we we watched the movie. Um, and it was an incredible honor to be a part of something so iconic. I've been for since childhood been a, he obsessed with vangelis Jean michel Charest and all of those guys uh who uh those early pioneers of electronic music was obsessed with the synthesizer music in the eighties and nineties and and um so yeah I mean but the thing is that you you just you have to jump in and get it done and um Hans was uh going on tour at that time uh so he you know we we spent a couple of days together Hans and I just Figuring out a bunch of themes, uh, he set me up with his CS-80 synthesizer, this unbelievable beast of an instrument that is very temperamental. when it works. It is just godlike in the sound it makes. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was truly one of those um, <laughs> unbelievable collaborations where Hans was on tour. I was working three or four times a week with the director. Hans was, was phoning in, listening to cues, giving feedback. He'd come back from tour in the middle and, and you know, we, we would just work like crazy together. And, and it was just an amazing whirlwind of creativity, but very much just completely centered by Denis. And his, his way of directing is so inspiring and clear. Uh, and the the way he's he embraces crazy experiments uh, and and we we were trying to honor Vangelis of course but it was also really important to do something new because the movie is so different from the first film in in terms of the story Um, and it's, it's in many ways more existential and more about the journey of one, one person and, and what it means to be human. What it, what was the idea of, you know, these huge questions like what is a soul? And, and uh, so, so in many ways, the, the score was quite, quite int- more, more introspective than the first, than the Vangelis. Um, but the, the idea was, I mean, what was interesting is sometimes you try something with a movie and it just rejects it. Not the, not like the director, it just, it doesn't work against picture. And whenever we try to use orchestra, it just, didn't fit um even if it was just strings just didn't fit and so this full embrace of of, of a synthesizer score was uh, it was a first for me but I, I it was probably one of the most liberating things i've ever done because um whilst i'm of course singing the praises of working with orchestras of course um the when, when you're tasked with the idea that you have to create an orchestra out of synthesizers with the same emotional impact, um, the, the whole process changes. And, 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 and I love that, you know, you're, you're forced to do something completely new and, um, it was, uh, yeah. What can I say? It was a massive honor and, and something I'm to this day, probably most proud of is to have been part of Blade Runner for sure.
0: No, for sure. It's a wonderful soundtrack to listen to. And that kind of led to, you know, you know the invisible man soundtrack uh which is fantastic and i just i mean this is uh, the invisible man soundtrack is something i actually put on the turntable and play chess to (laughs) wow (laughs) that's so cool and so i no, i love that and i love like i guess how much research or how much um how did you go about recreating you know the Invisible Man soundtrack because I mean this movie is fantastic. It's amazing. It was one of my favorite movies of 2020, and definitely by far my favorite score. Um, it, talk a little bit about coming up with this amazing story you told musically for Invisible Man.
1: Um, it was one of those moments of total synergy with 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 a filmmaker where Lee and I met. It was I think in November. Um, and we had to to record the score in January, so I had about four weeks to write the whole thing in December. Um, but because it, it was a bit like with Denis, uh, this unbelievable clarity of what um, what the film needed musically, coupled with the trust and the freedom to to be super experimental, um, and that was the big challenge is is, it, is the idea of creating a theme for something you can't see. And the way it's shot, is visually, Lee creates all this negative space on the screen, which you just come not to, not to trust quite deliberately is set up that in that way. And so the idea, the score, there's, there's several things to say, but in terms of how we depicted the Invisible Man, um, it was about creating the, the equivalent negative space um, that you don't trust in the music. And it's all very well just stopping and making silence, but you have to create this such energy and force in, in those, in the music that surrounds it. So for Adrian, the invisible man, um, his, his, um, his sound is this unbelievably aggressive electronic, uh, sort of soundscape that, that is kind of slightly schizophrenic and create, you know, just, you don't trust what it's going to do next. Um, and I mean, sometimes it can be as simple as just, just one filter sweep on a, on a low synth in a huge reverb and then nothing. And then something else happens. It's just like a, a line of tension, but it, it's like deliberately incredibly experimental sort of avant-garde, almost like music concrete some of the time. Um, so that you, you just think, well, that doesn't belong in the film score. What's going on there? Um, and you sort of come not to trust it. And the, and the tension from that just in the abstract was kind of how we tried to depict the invisible man, that sort of negative space that you don't trust in in the, in the score. Um, but also that in contrast with with the rest of it, which is deliberately an homage to one of my great heroes, Bernard Herrmann. I've always been obsessed with the, the score for Psycho, um, among obviously many of his other scores, but not for the famous shower scene, which everyone knows, but just the rest of it, the fact that he got so much out of a string orchestra, which is a choice they made at the time, because you know Hitchcock deliberately filmed it in black and white, even though color had been around for a long time, and, you know, Bernard Herman just wanted the musical equipment of that, which was a string orchestra as opposed to a full orchestra. At that time, film scores were very lush, full orchestral, and, um, you know, that was the, the the sound. And this the starkness of just strings, I thought that would be really interesting to explore in, in The Invisible Man, to, you know, because the, the strings are forced to push that much harder to get, you know, they would be otherwise supported by the brass, the wind percussion, other instruments, um, but they have to sort of get, you have to get more out of some things and, and that, that creates in itself a different energy. Um, so a lot of the score is, is focused on Cecilia uh, played by Elizabeth Moss. And the movie is, is this sort of tour de force of acting from Elizabeth Moss. Uh, it, it's one of the most amazing, uh, <laughs> such powerful acting. And, and I think every, well almost every musical decision I made was led by her performance and uh the idea of a woman being terrorized by firstly something you you know no one can see but even worse no one believes her and uh and she's being gaslit and, and being put in a situation where she cannot explain to anyone else and everyone thinks that she's going crazy and it gets obviously to a point where um there is no obvious way out i mean it's one of those movies where as an audience you go how could she possibly get out of this um and what's so incredible is 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 she does and she this this the power of her character and the strength that 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 we see um for me that was the the most important thing to try and capture in the music to to so that the payoff at the end of the movie feels you know feels very much led by that that story, her story as a character, and so we started at the end. Uh, and what's funny is, again, that process I, I go on with the, the, you know, writing a suite um, is what I did with this movie, even though there was very little time. And and it was Lee; he he just took this the end of the suite. Well, actually, it wasn't the end; it was in the middle of the suite. This big crescendo I'd written. Um, just I, It just happened to be something I thought would be good somewhere in the film, and he just put it on at the end of the movie where Elizabeth Moss is walking towards camera, just making eye contact with the audience for about a minute, which is such a bold piece of filmmaking and that was it It, it stayed from that moment of just a, a piece of music i 'd written away from picture it, and then ended up ending the film and it it was it was, it was actually really it was a huge relief because I was thinking I have no idea how to score that ending. I mean, that's one of the most difficult things. And and he just said, no, just put this here and that's it. And so we had a place to aim for. And and it was almost like a reverse engineering of setting up that moment um, through, throughout the score earlier. And Cecilia has two themes. She has this piano theme, which is um, deliberately asymmetrical in terms of the, it's like a, a repetitive piano piece, um, but it repeats Every I think every fifteen uh, uh, beats, but the harmonies repeat every sixteen beats. So it it kind of creates this uh, slight weird shift between harmony and melody, um, which is kind of meant to depict both her sort of you know she's she's holding on to who she knows she is but everything around her is constantly changing and getting stranger um and that it's just an abstract thing which i wanted to experiment with um there's a cello theme as well which is much simpler and you only hear two or three times deliberately it's like a memory of of who she she believes herself to be and and and, and that climax is at the end as well when she regains that um anyway it could go on forever i, I realize i Just jabbering on here.
0: No, this is this is wonderful (laughs) stuff. Wonderful stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Um and I I have a very serious question for you. Mm. Um, why is Raiders of the Lost Ark one of the perfect movies and scores?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Why is well well, because it's absolutely earth-shatteringly incredible in terms of the writing. I mean, it it is. I mean, what can I say? It's it's a work of genius. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, to a filmmaker and a, and a composer at the height of their powers and their collaboration, and uh, I think um, I mean what I love about that theme is the story. I think it's on YouTube. You can see how uh, originally the, the Raiders theme was was the second half of the tune, the dun da da, dun da da um, da da, and apparently that's what williams presented to spielberg in their first sort of here's the theme uh and then i think he said but i have this other theme which i'm not sure i'm not sure which one to use which was dun 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 bum 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 and it apparently was, and it was spielberg he said well why don't you just have one and then follow it with the other and 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 i love that's a perfect example of a collaboration like that and how how those things can unfold you know just um You you write music as a team with your filmmaker because it's it's all about that, um. You know that that's what it's all about, and and so I love watching those uh, those interviews and getting inspired by people I just am constantly in awe of, and so. But that's very. I don't really know how to answer that question. It's like you go into (laughs) semantics and and detail and analysis, but it's just a work of genius, and yeah, it's uh, something I. Uh, we're very lucky that Williams is still alive today. And there are new Williams scores coming out, you know, every couple of years, like what an amazing time to be alive as, as, as film music nerds.
0: Right. Right. (laughs) Which I I count
1: myself as one of.
0: For sure. For sure. I think, I think you're very knowledgeable in that and I'm glad you appreciate it. Like uh, the rest of us, maybe even more so. Um, Do you, what is, so being uh, this musician and this film composer, what is the most, curious slash strangest recording you own, whether it be like a strange record album or like an outtake from a session you've done, what's the strangest, most curious recording you own?
1: Wow. That's a really interesting question. Um, there's a crazy piece by Peter Maxwell Davis. Um, and now I'm blanking on exactly what the name is, something like The Madness of King George, or I think that's what it's called. I'd have to remember. But it is, without doubt, the strangest piece of music I think I've ever heard. Strike you! on you! Save your... um it was uh it was written i think in the 60s um there was this experimental music group in london called the fires of london uh which he was a part of i i I hope i'm getting this right i i this is now going back to my early student composer days uh when i was studying all this avant-garde stuff and but yeah i i remember hearing that piece and just it's that the score is something to to behold i mean he every page of the score i think it's in It's in like 10 movements or 12 movements. I can't remember. But one of the movements, uh, which is just like a section of the piece, looks like a birdcage. Um, Like he uses the staves uh, of music and bends them to form a birdcage. So you have to turn the page 90 degrees to read the music. um, and And it all kind of comes together at the top of this birdcage. It's crazy, interesting stuff, which I find fascinating. I mean, bending music to to its limits um so i think that's probably one of the strangest recording if you if you listen to that piece you'll know what i mean it's it's completely bonkers um but also um gosh i mean there's yeah i'm I'm just trying to think there's a lot
0: there, there is, I'm gonna, I'll probably find that uh, piece of music and add it into the show. So that'll be
1: awesome. It's really <laughs> weird. Yeah. Uh, and I hope I'm getting the title right. It's something like that. Um, and, and there's a lot of experiments I've made to uh, with, you know, when trying to form a soundscape for, for a movie. And um, I remember actually for Blade Runner, we did some, uh, very interesting recordings with uh Tristan Schultz, incredible instrumentalist, also a composer who lives in, in Germany. Uh he's a cellist, a singer, he plays wind instruments. Um and 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 we just experimented with how far we could push the cello so it doesn't sound like a cello, so it sounded like a synth. And 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 what happens when you create harmonics with your voice whilst playing because you know when you're synthesizing a sound, you know, it's all about the the you know Creating transients and you know harmonics to to create color, uh, and he would he would do amazing things where he would sing and play the cello at the same time in this absolute pure intervals like on the harmonic series that would create new a new color. It's fascinating. So we, we did a lot of experiments there, and, and there's I think a lot of outtakes that we didn't use that that are pretty pretty out there for sure.
0: That's amazing. So let's say you and a couple of friends got together one night, you might do this already, and you curated a, a an album listening evening of soundtracks Ooh. and scores. What <laughs> three soundtracks would be your picks to showcase on that night?
1: Wow, that's a really hard question. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's, that. Three. I mean, there'd be so many. Um I think it would be... I mean, it sounds obvious. I think E.T., for sure, just because of the impact it had on me as a kid. And... I also just think it's the best film score to this day. (laughs) It's a perfect film score. Um, It's like an
0: opera in and of itself.
1: Well, it 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 yes, and there's so much to say, but it 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 still creates this sense of awe in me, even all these years later. Um and and I think it's the beauty of the music as well, the 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 sense, the more quiet parts. I think there'd have to be um, Star Wars obviously would be on there too. Probably, interstellar, mm-hmm. or I mean, I just think what Hans has done for for our. You know, for propelling our, our, our craft forward. And, and, you know, as a good friend of mine, I mean, he's someone who who is constantly experimenting and trying to reinvent himself. And that's something I've learned to do myself um, from him. And um, yeah, I think it'd be important to include one of Hans's scores for sure.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. And then, you know, to uh, piggyback off that question, mm. are there any particular scenes? or musical cues minus E.T. that have always stuck with you. Ra- like that when you wake up in the morning, you say, shit, this, this musical cue is the one I'm thinking of. This scene is the one I'm thinking of. And then it'll inspire me and get me amped up to go work.
1: I think in the Temple of Doom, the, the slave children's revolt. Yes. That sequence. Um that cue, the da-da-da-da-da-da, da 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 that I remember listening to that on repeat as a kid. Just I don't know why. It was something about this March format and how exuberant it was, and also how it felt like kids were involved somehow. There was this, it had the play and power of of childhood in it somehow. So yeah, I think that would probably be Whenever I hear that piece and think of that moment, I, I that would uh, that amps me up for sure.
0: That's that's <laughs> great to hear. I'm the same way because that question for me, I always always go to Jerry Goldsmith's mm. um, explorers oh, yeah. um, in the first construction when they're building the Tilta World because it's got the kids. Yeah. They're doing something and it's
1: just so inspiring. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's a great moment too. Absolutely. And, uh,
0: i love that and of course we've kind of reached the end i can talk to you talk with you for hours but one of my last questions we have to bring up yeah this is so cool you know one of uh everyone's favorite video games is mortal Kombat from the early 90s and now you're involved in it and just how cool is that (laughs)
1: It was super cool. Uh, I I was amazed to get that opportunity, and and I kind of made it my mission with the director to to, you know that this was our first conversation is how do we pay maximum respect to the to to what the fans love and the original and um, when people hear it uh, we we I I really wanted to take that that techno track techno syndrome uh, and see see what I could. What is in that track that could be um, trans- transformed into something orchestral, and um, that was a very exciting process. Just to, you know, a complete reimagining of, of elements of that iconic track, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a, it was a great process and uh, a very long process. I was working on that movie for for a year now. Uh, we finished only a few weeks ago, um, and uh, I think the fans are going to be very excited when they see the film. It's it's neat. it's a really amazing experience
0: right and so i've got to mention the the last trailer that was released that red band trailer right. and that real short sequence between scorpion and sub-zero where mm-hmm. the blood comes out sub-zero freezes the blood and uses that frozen blood knife to stab him and right. then you hear that that ever so remnants of that iconic song i mm-hmm. i literally shouted I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic.
1: Oh, great so, to hear, man.
0: Yeah, after seeing that trailer fully done, were you just, was your mind blown?
1: Well, I, I've been lucky enough to, you know, have seen the footage for, for such a long time. I was definitely, my mind was blown with how they crafted, they managed to make the, the movie's, the the whole tone, the whole feel of the film perfectly encapsulated in that two and a half minute trailer was, it was a, it was a, I was blown away by just the sheer brilliance of these, these, these guys who edit these trailers and, and and sort of somehow just, yeah. Summarize the energy of the movie in two minutes. That's an amazing thing.
0: That's great. It's great. Yeah. We all can't wait to see it, but that brings a closure to this episode. Hopefully there will be a part two later on in the year. Uh Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on the show. The Course. spotlights on you now. Tell us where everyone can find you online and listen to you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I've got to work on that. Um well I'm on I'm on uh, Instagram, Benjamin Warfish. Um Twitter, I think is Ben at Ben Warfish, and um uh Facebook, I think is the same. And um I, I yeah, Spotify the normal streaming services so we're very lucky to have, have good relationships with all those guys A bunch of albums up there so yeah thank, you. thank um, you i think i should probably start a youtube channel at some point right i keep keep meaning to do that so you I, should I start a youtube channel yes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at some point um yeah but um thank you so much for for all the kind words and and inviting me on the show it's great to great to talk to you